1: More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting.
0: Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky?
1: I never win and tell.
0: Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void webred prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. This is a view from the bunker. Now, here's Derek Gilbert. From Blavatsky to Crowley to ancient aliens, welcome to A View from the Bunker. I'm Derek Gilbert. 76 years ago this weekend, something crashed in the desert near Roswell, New Mexico, and that kicked off, uh, well, a cottage industry, but also an intelligence community uh, disinformation op that is continuing almost eight decades later. We uh, are now seeing round two of the official disclosure that was supposed to have launched in December of 2017. Inci- interestingly and uh, coincidentally, and this actually is coincidental, this uh, began just about a week or so after Josh Peck's and my book, The Day the Earth Stands Still, was released by Defender Publishing just After that, of course, was the big article by Leslie Keen and Ralph Blumenthal in the New York Times featuring the Tic Tac video and the revelation that F-18 pilots from the USS Nimitz back in 2004 had seen something that was not of this world. Well, it turns out that's not entirely true. It uh, turns out that that video has been on the Internet or had been on the Internet since 2007 on YouTube. uh, Pulled down again after three-letter agencies began making calls and visits to people involved in the incident. And then suddenly in 2017, a former defense intelligence agency asset named uh, Luis Elizondo stepped forward, featured in that New York Times article, and uh, announced that he was part of something called To the Stars Academy of Arts and Sciences, headed up by former Blink-182 uh, uh, guitarist Tom DeLonge, who is uh, a true believer in the UFO phenomenon. His board of directors was comprised of people pulled right out of the, the intelligence, uh, what, what should we call them, the military intelligence complex. I mean, guys like Hal Puthoff, who was uh, involved at Stanford Research Institute in remote viewing experiments. This is how deep some of these guys were. Uh, that uh, has sort of dissolved, although uh, DeLong is still using that now, uh, that entity, to release his own creative uh, properties. But uh, at the time, back in 2017, early 2018, it was all over the news. Corporate mainstream media, Fox News, CNN, MSNBC, Wall Street Journal, New York Times, USA Today, uh, Washington Post, they were all covering the story. And uh, Tucker Carlson, God bless him, uh, with whom I agree about most everything, has really been featuring this, even now, on his new program, Tucker on Twitter. And criticizing the media for not Spending more time trying to reveal to the world that uh, extraterrestrial life exists. Uh, On this, I will disagree with Mr. Carlson. Brilliant man. But on this, there is another explanation. Yes, I believe that UFOs exist. They absolutely exist. Too many trained observers, too many observations, too many documented incidents. It doesn't automatically follow that UAP is from out of this world, from a, that it's extraterrestrial. Critical thinking needs to be applied. Furthermore, as Josh and I showed in our book, The Day the Earth Stands Still, there is a direct line, dots, that absolutely connect between the occult teachings of Helena Blavatsky in the 18th, 19th century, that is, Alistair Crowley in the early 20th century, and Eric Von Daniken. Yes, Ancient Aliens is absolutely founded on occult principles. And that will be the focus of our program today. One of the things Sharon and I forget to do, because we, uh, we want to dive into our topics, and we get involved in our podcast, whether it's our weekly Bible study, the Gilbert House Fellowship, PID Radio, our weekly program, the podcast that goes back to 2005, that uh, where we you know dig into crypto-politics and theo-politics. We forget to mention that we've got a streaming video site, So if you appreciate what we do, uh, we've got teachings, presentations, videos that are available to stream. Instant access for as little as $3, and uh, that's very simply at gilberthouse.org slash video. It's easy to find. This is one of the presentations that you will find there. we're offering this to you because it is the weekend commemorating the Roswell event back in 1947. So while we're thinking about this, and while Disclosure is back in the news now with the uh, new so-called whistleblower David Grush bringing this story back to the attention of the media again, we present to you the occult connections between Blavatsky, Crowley, and ancient aliens. You know, when I was a kid, I dreamed of being a third baseman for the Chicago Cubs and having, you know, that walk-up music when you come to the home plate. So that was pretty awesome. (laughs) Sadly, I'm here tonight without my best friend, Sharon, when we were invited to come, wanted to come, but she's been working real hard to finish the eighth novel in her series, The Red Wings Saga, which she just completed and sent out this week. It is now available at Amazon, but at the time, she wasn't sure she was going to be done. She's been working on it for 18 months. She puts a lot of research into her novels. In fact, some of it will show up in my presentations over the next 36 hours, but um, if you wouldn't mind, on the count of three, just to let her know that uh, she is missed here tonight by more than just me, if you would just say hello, Sharon. One, two, three. Hello! hello <laughs> okay. That'll be on Unraveling Revelation a week from Monday. <laughs> this is a presentation, and I've got to say, it is really an honor and a blessing to be able to share a stage with L.A. Marzulli because it was, as I've said at a number of conferences, and I've done this before, L.A., I blame you <laughs> for me being here. I was nearly 40 before I ever heard the word Nephilim in a church setting. And so, I, you know... Sharon's been raised in the church since she was like nine and she knew that she knew that she knew way back then. And she grew up in a church where they taught about Genesis 6 and the giants and how that has influenced all of Christian theology. I didn't. Our church, God bless them, they meant well, but it was like Jesus is sort of a cosmic life coach, which is the way most churches are. So again, 40 years old, I finally hear an evangelist in this little independent Baptist church talking about the giants of Genesis 6. Like, Sharon, did you know about this? The Nephilim? She's like, Yes, dear. <laughs> Bless your pointy little head. So I went to the local St. Louis County Library, and the only book that they had on the Nephilim was L.A.'s novel. And I read it, I think, in about one night. Like, wow, this is the coolest thing ever. But as you begin to realize that if it's in the Bible and it's weird, and as our friend Dr. Michael Heiser says, if it's weird, it's important. If it's in the Bible, you can't just let those subjects drop. There are a lot of pastors who don't know what to make of it, don't have the time because God bless them, they're, they're bivocational, they got to work to support the church, or their hands are full doing things beyond studying and preaching, and they don't have time to dig into these things, which is why we're here. It's not we're trying to replace pastors, we're trying to be a support this is additional information that the early church knew that we have forgotten over the years. And so, in 2014, as I was working as an outside salesman for a steel company, I mean you can just see me, you know, walking into weld shops, these big burly guys who work with uh, roustabouts in the oil field and coal miners. "Hi, trying <laughs> like to buy some steel!" <laughs> but I did that for four years. And come 2014, at, well, at the same time, researching and trying to write at night, spoke at the Prophecy Watchers Conference in 2014 in Colorado Springs. It was really getting frustrated, like I needed to be doing something more or something else or something different. Shared this with LA and Peggy, and they prayed over Sharon and me in the little hospitality room. And six months later, Tom Horn was inviting us to move to the Ozarks and become part of SkyWatch TV. So, when L.A. Marzulli prays, when Peggy Marzulli prays, things happen. And in fact, four and a half years ago, 2018, you were in the audience in Dallas when I first gave this presentation, this particular talk, and it's back because it's become more relevant. Thank you, Tucker Carlson. The UFO phenomenon, and I guess we can still call it UFO because now that I'm 60, I'm officially old. I don't have to be like the cool kids. Oh, it's UAPs now. It's Unidentified Aerial Phenomena. Or whatever. You know, Josh was telling us about some other new, new acronym. They must have a whole division at the Pentagon that just sits around and thinks of acronyms. Anyway, the UFO phenomenon is a modern sci-fi Religion. It is a religion. It is not seeking to answer the question of how we can travel between the stars. It is seeking to answer the three big questions that we, of all people, should have the answers to. Where do we come from? Why are we here? And what happens when we die? The UFO true believers, the ancient aliens prophets, and priesthood, if you will, they believe they have an answer to this. Now, back in 2017, Josh Peck and I wrote a book called The Day the Earth Stands Still, which is a play on the title of that 1952 movie. You remember? Klaatu, Barata, Nikto. Yeah, The Day the Earth Stood Still. The Day the Earth Stands Still, official disclosure. And where our book is a little different is we actually took research from secular researchers and show point by point how the modern ancient aliens' belief, this religion, is rooted in the Theosophy of Helena Blavatsky and the telema of Alistair Crowley. This is not stretching. I mean, this, and the researchers who made these connections would probably hate the fact that I am even talking about this and bringing their names into it. Because, by the best of my knowledge, they're not Christians. But they saw it. I'm just connecting the dots here. So, it was awfully nice, speaking of that book, that uh, one week after our book was released... The government released this. It's like, hey, what better marketing, you know? One week after our book comes out, the New York Times breaks the story. The USS Nimitz UFO incident from 2004, the Tic Tac. You've heard of the Tic Tac? Okay, the F-18 pilots really saw something because it wasn't just the F-18 pilots like Commander David Fravor. It was the radar operators on the USS Princeton, the USS Nimitz. There may also have been a, a submarine in the area as well. They saw something. But being critical thinkers, we have to ask this question. If, because the F-18 pilots couldn't identify it, does it automatically mean it's extraterrestrial? Not necessarily. Not necessarily. About four months later, another video was released. The Go Fast, the 2015 UFO encounter with the U.S. Navy F-A-18, but the thing is this, even though these weren't released until 2017, early 2018, they weren't exactly a secret in the UFO community. They weren't a secret in the UFO community. That first Tic Tac video, the USS Nimitz incident from 2004, had been on the internet since at least 2007, okay? It had been on the web for 10 years, on YouTube, and suddenly it was big news. In fact, this was written up by a fighter pilot for an online website, a news magazine, if you will, by and for fighter pilots called Fighter Sweep. In 2014, the author of the piece wrote this. Last month, when I called Dave, that's Commander David Fravor, To refresh my memory before sitting down to write this bizarre encounter, he informed me that the video had been removed from YouTube. He told me that a government agency with a three-letter identifier, CIA, NSA, DIA, had recently conducted an investigation into the AAVs and had exhaustively interviewed all parties involved. All seven flight crew, including six air crew from VFA-41, Cheeks from VMFA-232, the fire control officer and senior chief from Princeton, and the radar operator on the E-2. That's the plane that coordinates action of all the other planes in the battle zone. They even queried the crew of the USS Louisville, the Los Angeles-class fast-attack submarine. It was in the same area as part of the Nimitz carrier strike group who reported there were no unidentified sonar contacts or strange underwater noises that day. Now, this 2015 video, the Go Fast video, was reportedly being used to show F-18 crews how to to track fast-moving objects. The Navy had been showing it to pilots before it was broken as breaking news by the corporate media. And interestingly, according to the author of the piece at Fighter Sweep, his source said, no one had ever mentioned the possibility that it was extraterrestrial. It's like, hey guys, here's a training exercise. Here's a fast moving object, how do we track it? But yet, suddenly, in December of 2017, big news, New York Times, CNN, Washington Post, USA Today, Fox News, MSNBC, CNN, military releases UFO footage of a video that had been out on YouTube for 10 years. Why was it big news all of a sudden? Did anybody in any of those corporate media outlets ask the question? Because the military pilots obviously knew it had been around. Oh, yeah, I called Dave to refresh my memory about this incident, and he said, oh, yeah, it's weird. It's been pulled off of YouTube for some reason, and uh, no such agency is asking about it. So the questions that should have been asked but weren't, who released the videos, why now? Who released the videos, and why now? Well, the answer to who released the videos, to the STARS Academy of Arts and Sciences. This is no longer in operation, but at the time, it was a for-profit venture headed up by Tom DeLonge, the former lead singer of the rock and roll band (laughs) Blink-182. But most of the senior staff Came from careers in the CIA, the DIA, or the military-industrial complex. So you got a bunch of spooks and a rock and roll singer. Here's a screenshot of their homepage, and this is uh, perhaps the reason why they were so interested in going public. At the time, they were soliciting for investors, and at the time I got the screen cap, back in 2018. 2.5 million dollars invested. But the senior staff included Dr. Hal Putoff, who directed the Stanford Research Institute's experiments in remote viewing in the 70s and 80s, and the Stargate project for the CIA and the DIA. Jim Semivan, vice president of operations, retired from the CIA in 2007. Steve Justice, aerospace division director, retired after 31 years at the head of Lockheed Martin's Skunk Works. Chris Mellon, National Security Affairs Advisor, who was Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Intelligence in the Clinton and Bush administrations. He was country and Western. Dr. Paul Rapp. Dr. Paul Rapp, head of Brain Function and Consciousness. Brain Function and Consciousness. He uh, had received a certificate of accommodation for, from the CIA for significant contribution to the mission of the Office of Research and Development from the CIA. Dr. Norm Kahn, 30-year career with the CIA, goes to To the Stars Academy of Arts and Sciences as national security and program management consultant. He uh, worked on development and direction of the intelligence community's counter-biological weapons program. These are the people connected with the organization that coordinated the release of the video. I didn't even mention uh, Luis Elizondo who was the guy who actually got the video out, who had retired from the Defense Intelligence Agency, and we learned later had been in charge of a program pushed by former Senator Harry Reid of your neighboring state to investigate unidentified aerial phenomena. He retires in October. In December, he hands the video to the New York Times for a for-profit agency. Now, maybe I'm just a little too skeptical. Maybe... I'm just at that age now where I see things that go, hmm, maybe I've lived in Missouri too long, you know, the show me state. Yeah, show me. Uh, Maybe it's possible that a group of ex-intelligence professionals, military professionals, just got together and said, let's collaborate, pool our years of research, and maybe we can make a few bucks on this UFO thing. We can promote research and uh, exploration of sophisticated, cutting-edge technologies like Electrogravitic produc- propulsion, beamed energy launch systems, engineering space time. Uh, but then some of the other things that they said they wanted to research telepathy. I mean, this is from the To the Stars Academy website, what they wanted to research telepathy, brain computer interfaces, consciousness. Consciousness. How does that connect to unidentified aerial phenomena? Well, it does, if you look big picture. Oh yeah, and of course, UAPs. So these guys wanna get into all of this cutting edge science. I mean, some of which, a lot of scientists, mainstream scientists would say, (laughs) that's that's woo. (laughs) But still, Pentagon is involved in a lot of things that we don't know about. Who's seen or read The Men Who Stare at Goats? Yeah, it was played for laughs, but this was a real thing. They wanted to train soldiers to be able to kill with their minds. In other words, trying to weaponize the occult. Our tax dollars at work, ladies and gentlemen. To the STARS Academy of Arts and Sciences, this is what they wanted to research. And yet somehow this group of trained, seasoned veteran, military and intelligence professionals decided that the right man to be the chief executive officer of their corporation was a rock and roll singer. In what reality does that make sense? Now, I don't mean any disrespect to Tom DeLong, he seems like a very sincere guy, but something here just doesn't seem right. If it's true what they say, that nobody ever really leaves the CIA, maybe what was going on here was the same thing that's been going on connected to the UFO, UAP phenomenon since 1947. That any time there is any information that gets out, the military and intelligence communities, the military intelligence complex, has its fingers all over it. Controlling the narrative. That, I believe, is exactly what's going on here. Since 1947, when Roswell first hit the front page, what are the images we remember? Men in military uniforms bending over showing... Look, it was just a balloon. Yeah. This was true when Josh and I researched the book. With every single UFO flap encounter incident that we could come across, the military and the intelligence communities were all over it. Now, again, the guys on the USS Nimitz, the Princeton, the Louisville, they really did see something and it really was moving way faster than anything that we have in our arsenal. According to the numbers I ran, that Tic Tac flew about one and a half times faster than the SR-71 Blackbird, which is the fastest known aircraft produced by man today. Okay? But, does it follow automatically that it must be extraterrestrial? We don't know how it did that. Is it extraterrestrial? If so, what is the evidence? Is it possible, is it possible that the U.S. government is working on something that can outfly the F-18? And if so, would we want China and Russia to know about it? Well, possibly. But possibly not in a way that they know that we're the ones who actually Created. Is it possible that this is Russian or Chinese and we don't want the American public to know that they've got something that can outfly our fastest fighter jets, our fastest planes? I don't know. What really happened at Roswell? Plenty of competing theories. Everything from a craft to a weather balloon to an experiment involving scientists who were snuck out of Germany on the rat lines. Nazi scientists, how easy would it have been for the American government to admit to the American taxpayer, oh yeah, we're paying these guys who two years ago were finding creative ways to kill, seven million Jews, nine million Ukrainians, and oh yeah, probably somebody you know who went off to fight in Germany, or in Europe. No, the narrative that came out was better than whatever the truth is. But the point is this, just because we don't know who created the Tic Tac, Or who created these mysterious lights in the sky that we've been seeing, especially since 1947, does not automatically mean. Sorry, Giorgio. Doesn't mean it was aliens. Giorgio Tsoukalos and others like him will use an incident from the Bible to prove that we have been visited by astronauts for literally thousands of years. Ezekiel's wheel. Ezekiel chapter one, where he sees the wheels within wheels, and they're covered with eyes all around, and the spirits, the living creatures, are in them, and the four living creatures. And Giorgio doesn't know what it is, or he pretends not to know, and so he says, "So could it be?" You ever notice they never make statements; they always ask questions to make it sound like they're saying something when they're really not saying anything. I think the lawyers have something to do with that. Is it possible that this was an ancient craft? and the prophet Ezekiel just didn't know what to make of it. No, that's actually not what it was. You see, the image that Ezekiel saw, what he saw and described, would have been familiar imagery to his readers 2,500 years ago. What Ezekiel described was a throne. This was common imagery for a throne in the ancient Near East. With the living creatures, yeah. Do a search for King Tut's throne sometime. But the wheels, yes, yes. Oftentimes the throne of the king in the ancient Near East had wheels. Oftentimes had legs of a creature, sometimes the heads of the creature. Tut's throne, his golden throne, even has wings, multiple wings, sort of like the cherubim or the seraphim. This was not unusual imagery for Mesopotamia 2,600 years ago. Modern-day America, yeah, it's pretty weird. But if it's in the Bible and it's weird... It's important. We should probably dig a little deeper so that guys like Giorgio don't get the last answer. The second clue that this is really, really relevant is that Ezekiel goes to great pains in his book to be very explicit about where he had this vision. Ezekiel one one, he's talking about this at the when I was with the uh, uh, the the uh, the exiles at the Kivar Canal, C-H-E-B-A-R, the Kivar Canal. And then he mentions again in chapter 1, he's had this vision at the Kivar Canal. He mentions it six more times, eight times in all in the book of Ezekiel. He talks about the vision I had at the first by the Kivar Canal. Why does he mention that so many times? Nothing in the Bible is there by accident. Ezekiel didn't have a minimum word count requirement for the book. God did not dictate you must have at least 38,000 words by 586 BC or you're in trouble. Unlike when Tom Horn assigns us a book, we get a minimum word count requirement. Ezekiel, not under such constraints. What's the deal with the Kivar Canal? It ran right through an ancient city in Iraq, Sumer, Mesopotamia, the middle of Iraq today called Nippur, N-I-P-P-U-R, Nippur. It has been taken and twisted by modern ancient aliens, prophets, as Nibiru. Okay? Nippur was important because that was the location of the temple of the chief god of Mesopotamia named Enlil. Enlil was the great mountain. That was his main nickname or epithet. And once a year, all of the gods of Mesopotamia would gather at the Iker, the house of the mountain, where they would decree the fates of the land for the coming year. So what happened, and the reason Ezekiel made this point eight times in his book, was that God showed Ezekiel his throne, revealed his glory to Ezekiel, directly over the temple of the chief god of Mesopotamia. (laughs) Boom, mic drop. Ezekiel mentions it again and again because his readers would have understood. Oh, you saw the throne of Yahweh, directly above that place that the pagans think is so important. This was not coincidence. No coincidences in Scripture. God revealed his, and not only did he reveal his glory in his throne directly over the temple of the entity believed to be the father of all the gods of Mesopotamia, Then God goes on to tell Ezekiel, and now here's what's going to happen through the rest of history. Are you listening down there, big mountain? You ever notice in Zechariah 4 that verse? You know the verse, not by might nor by power. You ever go on from there where God says, who are you, O great mountain? It's usually taught by Bible teachers as a metaphor for a difficult problem see Zerubbabel. God says, before Zerubbabel, you, O great mountain, will become a plain. This was an an image, a a symbol of the difficult task that Zerubbabel had of rebuilding the temple. No, no. God was mocking the chief god of Mesopotamia because Israel had just returned from 70 years in Mesopotamia. Do you think the Jews, after 70 years living amongst the Babylonians, didn't know who the great mountain was? Of course he did. And God, again, had mocked him when he appeared to Ezekiel right over the temple of the so-called Great Mountain. Uh, I will be talking more about that entity tomorrow and Sunday. Anyway, sadly, the ancient aliens guys, because they don't understand something or pretend not to know something, call it selective and willful ignorance, they said, well, we don't know how. They must have built this. So it must have been... Could it have been aliens? For example, they talk about these, these massive blocks of stone, like the Trilithon at Baalbek. Uh, Baalbek, the Trilithon stones, massive stones cut for the Temple of Jupiter, which, by the way, Jupiter, Baal, Zeus, all the same entity by different names. Did you know that Baalbek was the largest temple of Jupiter in the Roman Empire? I mean, Jupiter was the king of the Roman pantheon. Why was his largest temple in Lebanon and not, you know, Rome? Just a question. I will address that tomorrow. Mental note, don't forget to address that tomorrow. Uh, Some of these stones are massive. The Temple of Jupiter at Baalbek. Giorgio will say that uh, we don't have equipment today that can lift a 750-ton block of stone. And so, could it be? Well, no. No, it doesn't have to be. I mean, it might have been, but the point is, yes, we can and do move objects that heavy today. There are trucking companies here in these United States that specialize in hauling loads of up to 1,000 tons. The Trilithon Stone's about 750 tons. The company in Minnesota, Perkins Specialized Transportation, Northfield, Minnesota. A friend of mine who I met in outside sales and we discovered, hey, You're studying the book of Revelation? Me too. Outside sales can be a great witnessing opportunity. If you're not, I think this was the Lord breaking me out of a shell. It's a lot, I don't know, it's weird. It's a lot easier to stand up here and do this than it is for me to go up to people one-on-one. It's weird. Thankfully, the Lord has figured out how to use this weird wiring. A friend of mine at a company in Decatur, Illinois, used Perkins to haul massive heat exchangers that weigh up to 125 tons, so I know personally guys who have moved objects that according to Giorgio, can't be moved. You've got lots of special permits, state police have to come out, you got to close the bridge over the Mississippi except for the two trailers that are hauling this thing across the river, but it can be done. But it's been done with a block of stone even bigger than the trilithon stone in recorded history without power equipment. This happened in the 18th century. This is the bronze horseman Peter the Great of Russia, the largest stone ever moved by humans. It's called the Thunderstone, 1,650 tons. That is 3.3 million pounds. And it was moved in uh, about 1770. It was moved four miles over land by a bunch of Russians with ropes. No power equipment, no animals, just some good engineering, and a lot of really stubborn and determined Russians. My point here. Critical thinking. Just because I don't know how this was done until I looked it up doesn't mean it has to be the least likely answer. Somebody from outer space must have picked up that rock and moved it. Well, thankfully, the Russians recorded this. Everybody hold still for the selfie. 1770. Four miles this was moved, the guys up on top are actually cutting some of the weight off of it as they're shaping it while it's being moved to save time. So again, just because Giorgio doesn't know doesn't mean it's aliens. But the question here, as Christians, and I think this is a question that more Christians in the pews need to ask because there are precious few pastors. I know when the Stephenville, Texas flap came out, L.A. reached out to churches all over the region in Texas. And he said not a single one got back to him. He said, look, can we talk about this in your church? We've got answers for this. We can address this. Everybody in your area is talking about this. Those lights over Stephenville, Texas, people saw it. Nobody was interested. Not a single church. So the question is, why should we care as Christians? Why should we care? I mean, this is weird, right? I suggest to you we should care because good hard research suggests that there are more people who believe in E.T. than believe in God. I wish I was exaggerating. More people believe in E.T., the existence of E.T., than believe in the God of the Bible, as has, he, he has revealed himself in his word. Back in 2012, when the National Geographic Channel was getting ready to launch yet another cable show about UFOs, They found that 36% of Americans believe that UFOs exist, 36% believe that aliens have visited the earth, 77% believe that earth has been visited by extraterrestrial entities. To compare, the George Barna Group, which regularly does a study, he's now at Arizona Christian University, found that while 73% of American adults, this is in 2017, 73% of American adults call themselves Christian, only 10% have a biblical worldview. And by that, he defines a biblical worldview as having a core belief in six core biblical precepts, like uh, Jesus lived a sinless life. You can't earn your way into heaven. The Bible is literally the word of God. Satan is real and not just a concept. Things like that. Christianity 101. Only 10% of American Christians have a biblical worldview. What's What's sad is that he just released another study this past week. The number, the percentage, rather, of senior pastors in America with a biblical worldview is only slightly higher than the percentage of Americans who believe that we're being visited by extraterrestrials. In other words, the fact that you're here means you probably have a biblical worldview. But it means when you go back out into the world, there are more of them, meaning the believers in E.T., than there are of us. This is why we should care. Because it's an alternate belief system that substitutes for the saving gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, here's the thing. For the record, when Josh and I wrote the book, I want to make it clear that we do not believe there is any hard, unquestionable evidence of the existence of extraterrestrial intelligences, true extraterrestrials. Frankly, I think it would be cool And I think the Christian worldview can accommodate the existence of ET. I don't think the Bible speaks to the matter one way or the other. But when God said, let us create man in our image, what he meant was, we are his image bearers. We don't look like God. God doesn't look like us. We bear his image to the world. We are his flag bearers, if you will. We are his moral agents on this earth. And so if extraterrestrials from Zeta Reticuli suddenly landed on the White House lawn, and said, take me to your leader, because he clearly doesn't live here. (laughs) Sorry. I didn't want to get political. (laughs) Say it was a cheap shot, I know. And remember, we are called to pray for all of our government officials, regardless of color, party, or belief. No, but if E.T. literally landed on the White House lawn, and said, we're here, we'd like to be friends. That does not change our status as Christians, as God's image bearers on this earth, okay? It does not change my faith in Jesus Christ one iota. It does not change our status as sinners in need of his saving grace and his sacrifice. Having said that, I think if something like this important the true existence of extraterrestrial intelligence were a thing, God would probably have warned us. And I think in a way he has. We just don't study the word enough to detect the deception. Now, let's dig into how we got to where we are and why the corporate media is promoting this idea that the old gods have come back, except they're just astronauts. And hey, if they're just astronauts with really cool toys, then we can be just like them. Ye can be as gods. That's what this is really all about. E.T. Disclosure. Oh, that's going to, I'm jumping ahead there. The smoking gun of UFO research, 1947, the Roswell crash, it didn't really become a phenomenon until the 1980s. I mean, I always thought, because I really began paying attention to this after I got into my 20s, that the Roswell thing was a big deal as soon as it happened. But after the the initial flap in 1947, it kind of faded away. But in 1967, Walker Air Force Base, which previously had been home to the only nuclear bomber wing in the US Air Force, closed down. Roswell's not that big a town. You close down a uh, base that uh, employs 7,000 out of the 39,000 people in the community, Suddenly, you've got a problem. The real estate market in Roswell collapsed. 4,000 homes went on the market like that. So city leaders trying to save their community. It's like, what is Roswell known for aside from UFOs? Well, they got cows. Dairy industry. <laughs> that's, that's how they explained all the flies that we saw in Roswell. We were there for, in 2017, the uh, 70th anniversary of the Roswell crash. We did an interview with our friend Joe Jordan in one room of a hotel. Closed door, windows closed, a couple of flies in the room. By the time we were done, they were buzzing through the shots. They were landing on microphones. You could hear in the interview, Psst. Where were they? It was like a Stephen King movie. And they're saying, well, it's because we've got such, you know, these dairy operations outside of town. It's like, look, I'm sorry. I live in Missouri next to pasture land. Our neighbors are delicious. Cattle. We don't have flies like that. But that's all Roswell had going for it. So the town fathers, like somebody said, hey, remember that thing back in 47? William Moore and Charles Berlitz published the first major book on Roswell in 1980, and now every year, thousands, tens of thousands travel to Roswell to see where it happened. The annual Roswell UFO Festival. When we went there in 2017, it was clear that it was, for many, a religious experience, There weren't any churches there witnessing, but there were plenty of booths for palm reading and selling crystals. We didn't see MIT or Caltech there recruiting the next generation of astrophysicists or aeronautical engineers. A lot of people there were willing to read your palm, tell your future. And we interviewed some of those people. They were looking for the answers to the big questions. Where did we come from? Why are we here? And what happens when we die? Some of them had had experiences. They had seen things when they tried to talk about it. Nobody wanted to hear it. Oh, that's... Better keep that on the uh, down low. Go to a pastor. Pastor didn't want to talk about it. Oh, that's really outside. That's, you know... You might want to see somebody about that. And there are other major UFO conferences every year around the country. Scottsdale, Arizona, McMinnville, Oregon, Eureka Springs, Arkansas, home of the oldest UFO festival in the country, just an hour from where we live in the Ozarks. Joshua Tree, California. Why do people go to these events every year? They don't talk about space travel. The people go there, they want to know how to make contact with our space brothers. Why? Why do we see tarot card readers at these events instead of NASA or the Department of Defense? You're interested in aircraft, I see. Well, we've got a need for young man or woman like you. No. And our friend Guy Malone, we call him our missionary to Roswell, he produced a number of conferences some years ago, the Ancient of Days Bible UFO Conferences. He said it's sad, but the churches, the Christian churches in Roswell really don't want to put a stop to the annual festival because it brings a lot of money into the town. Yeah. It's like, well, you know, the cult of the cult of Artemis brought a lot of money into Ephesus back in Paul's day too, you know. The reason we see the tarot card readers, the palm readers, the crystals for sale is because this is a religion. The, probably the most prominent leader in this uh, UFO disclosure movement is Dr. Stephen Greer. He founded the Disclosure Project, the Center for the Study of Extraterrestrial Intelligence. He was interviewed by LA Weekly Magazine about about eight years ago, and I'm gonna quote from the article now. A former trauma doctor, he left a $500,000 a year job as chairman of emergency medicine at Caldwell Memorial Hospital in North Carolina to study UFOs full-time. That's not a career decision you make for the money, right? It's hard to imagine why someone with a wife and four kids leaves a a half-million-dollar-a-year job until you understand that, in Greer's view, extraterrestrials are nothing less than an answer to a spiritual crisis. Why save one life in an emergency room when you can save an entire planet? On his 18th birthday, he climbed up onto a fire tower to meditate. Again, he saw a disk materialize. Feeling a tap on the shoulder, he turned to behold a small creature with beautiful eyes. Greer felt himself flying as the creature beamed him onto a spaceship. Time stood still. He felt connected to everyone and everything. After that experience, he continued to connect with pure, universal love. Every night he meditated, and every night the aliens came. This is Los Angeles Magazine, about eight years back. This is why Stephen Greer does this. I tried watching his documentary that was put out about four years ago called (laughs) Serious. We should name it for our friend Pastor Paul Begley. Are you serious? Anyway, after about five minutes and realizing he was going down the ancient aliens track, again, I had to stop watching because it's like, okay, I've seen this movie before. I mean, I haven't seen this movie before, but I've seen seen this movie before. Our friend, the late Chris Putnam, reviewed the movie back in 2013, and he nailed it, saying, writing rather, Dr. Greer is promoting pantheistic monism, the idea that the universe is an all-encompassing God, and the ETs, who exi- whose existence is being covered up by the evil military-industrial complex, he's probably right about that, but Uh, just want to save us from nuking ourselves into oblivion if only they can somehow get their information past the evil military-industrial complex. And so to reach out to them, to get around this block that the military-industrial complex, Dr. Greer has actually invented tech to teach us how to meditate as he has meditated to make direct contact with the aliens, And this was the slide that I jumped to too early before. He's got an app to get you possessed. Download it at the app. Actually, don't download this at the app store. But this is intended to teach people to make what he calls close encounters of the fifth kind, the CE5 protocol. That's going beyond direct physical contact and reaching out Spiritually by meditating, emptying your mind and allowing whatever is out there to come in and take up residence. Amen. It's like the parable of the man who drives out an evil spirit and cleans up his house. The evil spirit goes into a dry and dusty place, waterless place, comes back with seven spirits worse than itself. Meditation can be dangerous. This ET contact tool will teach you how to meditate and reach out and make contact with E.T. Now, as a Christian, you can see why this would be a problem. Dr. Greer is sincere. He seems like a very nice man, but he is sincerely deluded. This is an alternate, unbiblical answer to the questions, where did we come from? Why are we here? Where do we go when we die? To date, There is literally no credible evidence that the earth has been visited by genuine extraterrestrials. Now there is hard evidence, and LA has been part of some of the most cutting-edge investigations into this, hard evidence of something that does not appear to be human technology, but it doesn't mean it came from zeta reticuli. The fact is that we here on earth have been visited for literally millennia by inhuman entities. That is the direction we need to turn our thoughts when we think about this this movement. The ET contact meme. The UFO community spreading it now with the help of corporate media. Where does it come from? This was the new research that Josh and I put into our book back in 2017, The Day the Earth Stands Still. A quick history timeline of how we get from there to hear, Emanuel Swedenborg. He was a scientist, Swedish, 18th century. He was also a philosopher and a mystic who believed that the Bible was the word of God, but its true meaning differs from its obvious meaning. It doesn't say what you think it says. And furthermore, only I, Emanuel Swedenborg, with the help of angels, can properly interpret the word of God. Send monies. Seriously. Swedenborg believed that the world of matter is just a laboratory for the soul, where the material is force refined before passing on to the next life. He believed that all religious systems have a divine duty and purpose, and all of them lead to heaven. Uh, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. Maybe that's why Swedenborg says, no, that doesn't mean what you think it means. Trust me, I'm hearing from the angels. The mission of the church is necessary because we poor, simple souls cannot work out our relationship with God. Because again, only I, Immanuel Swedenborg, have the true interpretation of the word of God. He also believed he was hearing from angels in Jupiter and uh, elsewhere in the solar system. Uh, To this day, the Swedenborg Foundation, which is still around, believe it or not, um, offers Modern translation of his book, Life on Other Planets, a book that details his conversations with spirits on Jupiter, Mars, Mercury, Saturn, Venus, and the moon. But they've changed the name from Swedenborgianism now to the new church. I guess it focus grouped better than Swedenborgianism. So we move from Emmanuel Swedenborg to, uh, believe it or not, Joseph Smith. Founded Mormonism after a visit from the angel... Moroni, in 1823, his belief included uh, the existence of many other worlds. Uh, To Smith, God was flesh and blood, a mortal man who who had earned godhood by being really, really good when he was a human. And so all you men out there, you too can become gods of your own planet someday. You women better be nice to your men because you can't go unless they call you after. That's in a nutshell, and that's being somewhat facetious, but that's not too far from the truth. Then we go to spiritism. Oh, and by the way, I think it's worth mentioning and considering that while Swedenborgianism has pretty much faded out as a force in this world, uh, the religion founded by Joseph Smith has about 15 million adherents. That's more than Judaism. And one of them almost became our president in 2012. So consider. Uh, spiritism. Kate and Margaret Fox, two sisters, aged 12 and 15, in 1848, they kicked off the spiritism movement when they convinced their older sister, Leah, that they were communicating with spirits who were sharing messages through coded wrappings. Secret messages. Ask a question. One knock for yes, two for no. Leah later became their business manager, and they made quite a living traveling around doing this, even though they later admitted in a New York newspaper interview in the 1880s That they'd made the whole thing up. Sister Margaret admitted, yeah, we were cracking our knuckles, cracking our toes. (laughs) I mean, ew. (laughs) But that's how they were doing it. But even though they admitted in this 1888 interview that they'd faked the whole thing, true believers didn't want to give up the belief. Oh, no, no, that's still a real thing. The spirits can still talk with us. In fact, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, the creator of Sherlock Holmes, wrote a history of the spiritism movement in 1927 because he still believed it. Forty years after they said, we made the whole thing up, please forgive us. Then we come to Helena Blavatsky. Madame Blavatsky, the founder of Theosophy, which claimed to blend spiritism, the Fox sisters' teaching, with... Science. She basically cobbled together a bunch of traditions from Eastern religions. She laid the foundation for the modern UFO phenomenon and ET disclosure movement. She acknowledged the existence of spiritualist phenomena, but denied that mediums were actually communicating with spirits of the dead. She believed they were communicating with ascended masters. She said, God is a universal divine principle, the root of all from which all proceeds and within which all shall be absorbed at the end of the great cycle of being. All is one and one is all. Very Eastern. That's not how God created you and me. We are individual, unique, fearfully and wonderfully made. And when he returns, we are not absorbed into him. We will get to rule and reign in the new new earth. Me, I'm hoping for a job in the archives. I want to read all those books that I didn't get time to read in this life. Lovatsky's most famous books, Isis Unveiled, published 1877. Her magnum opus, The Secret Doctrine, published in 1888. Her key point in her teachings was the existence of lost continents and so-called root races. She wrote, Lemuria was the homeland of humanity, the place of the first creation. Further, There were to be seven root races ruling the earth in succession, of which humanity today was only the fifth. The fourth of these races was the Atlanteans, who were destroyed by black magic. Now here's the thing. There is no evidence that Lemuria ever existed. Atlantis is referred to in some ancient Greek writings, but we still don't know where it is. But here, (laughs) this is a true story. In 1864... A zoologist noticed that there were certain primate fossils found in India that were very, very similar to primate fossils in Africa. And he also noticed that there's a great big stretch of ocean between those two places. So the lemurs here are like the lemurs here. There must have been a big piece of land, like a lost continent in between, where they crossed. And that's how it got the name Lemuria. Seriously. And Blavatsky built this into a religion, and there are still people today who think that Lemuria was actually a thing and that it's being covered up. With theosophy, Blavatsky gave the world a religion where human evolution was an integral part of cosmic evolution. And the ultimate goal was perfection. Every day, in every way, we're getting better and better. But here's the thing we were to take conscious participation in the evolutionary process. In other words, self-directed evolution. If that phrase sounds familiar to you, it's because that was the motto of the eugenics movement of 100 years ago. Those who believed that we needed to eliminate the weaker among us so that the strongest would survive. We would improve and become more perfect by getting rid of the degenerate races. This was uh, taken very seriously by the Nazis. But sadly, the Nazis developed their eugenics program from the program developed in the state of Indiana and the state of California. A fellow by the name of David Starr Jordan came from Indiana University, became the first, uh, the first head of Stanford. IU's got a lot to answer for. Sharon is a graduate of IU, but between uh, David Starr Jordan and uh, Alfred Kinsey, IU's got some explaining to do. Anyway, this process of the eugenics movement, this self-directed evolution was to be guided and overseen by the masters of the ancient wisdom, these disembodied spirits that Blavatsky and other occult adepts could come in contact with. She believed this was a hierarchy of spiritual beings who had been guiding humanity in our development for millennia. Sort of like... The Monoliths in, was it 2001, A Space Odyssey? I forget the year, 2001, 2022? Yeah, anyway, 2001, A Space Odyssey, the Monoliths, guiding human development. Blavatsky, Masters of Ancient Wisdom. And then comes Edward Alexander Alistair Crowley, born in 1875 in Warwickshire, England. In 1904, when living in Cairo, Crowley heard a message from an Egyptian god something calling itself Iwas, the messenger of the god Harpur-Krat, known to the Greeks as an aspect of Horus, Harpocrates, the god of silence. That's who answered him. And so over a period of three days, between April 10th, 8th and 10th of 1904, Crowley transcribed what he heard from the voice of Iwas, and this was the basis for his religion called Thalema, Thalema, ushering in what Crowley called the Aeon of Horus, the Age of Horus. This was the basis for Crowley's new secret society, Ordo Templi Orientis, or the OTO, similar to Blavatsky's Theosophical Society, teaching universal brotherhood. The main difference is that uh, Blavatsky claimed to hear from ascended masters, Crowley claimed he heard from Egyptian gods. In a nutshell, that was the difference between the two. Now here's where things get weird. Err. In the early 20th century, a horror fiction author, Howard Phillips Lovecraft, H.P. Lovecraft, came on the scene, spawned an entire genre of Gothic-style horror fiction. He was a a sickly child when he was growing up. He missed so much school that he basically had to teach himself. Um, And here's the thing that most students of Lovecraft aren't aware of. As a child, he was tormented by night terrors, night terrors. L.A. just published an excellent new book by an author named Vicki Joy Anderson. They only come out at night about night terrors. You really should get it and read it. All of us have experienced it at least once. Anyway, Lovecraft, at the age of six, experienced it almost every night for an entire year. Now, I had it happen to me once that I can remember when I was 22. And here I am, 60. I still remember it. I have never been so terrified in my entire life. This six-year-old boy experienced this every single night, visited by what he called night gaunts, faceless humanoids with black, rubbery skin, bat-like wings and barbed tails who wanted to carry him off to dreamland. I mean, a six-year-old boy dealing with this every single night. His parents, who had their own issues, both of his parents ended up in an asylum. They didn't know how to help him. But this guided... Lovecraft's later career as a horror fiction author. In fact, he would write The Night Gaunts into a couple of his stories. It is possible, and I'm speculating here because I don't know, I've not done a deep study on this, that he was tormented by the same spirits that tormented his parents. Again, both of them ended up in what were then called insane asylums. Lovecraft said he was an atheist but he was happy to use the teachings of Blavatsky and Crowley as material for his stories, his horror fiction. Lovecraft viewed the the universe as a cold, unfeeling place where we humans were at the mercy of these vast, ancient entities who barely took notice of us. And if they did, it was because they were probably hungry. The best you could hope for from these entities was that they would uh, leave you alone. The most famous of his stories was called The Call of Cthulhu. This was published in 1928. This was a cosmic entity depicted as a giant creature like an octopus crossed with a dragon, worshiped by cultists in the bayous of Louisiana. In the story, Cthulhu hibernates in an underwater city somewhere in the South Pacific, waiting for the stars to align. He lies there at the bottom of the ocean, dead, but dreaming. But his spirit is responsible for a growing sense of unease and disquiet amongst humans. People reporting strange dreams, nightmares. Others joining these strange cults, worshiping this rubbery, horrific monster in the middle of the the swamps and bayous. But while currently trapped at the bottom of the ocean, a day is coming when Cthulhu will return, a day for which his worshippers wait with great anticipation. Lovecraft wasn't very well known while he was alive. After he passed in the 1930s, basically broke and penniless, he developed a whole new audience. His fiction had been shared with a number of authors who became friends. He wrote probably more letters than he actually wrote stories. And he encouraged his uh, friends to take some of his creations and weave them into his own stories. For example, the Necronomicon, which was this book of spells written by the mad Arab Abu al-Hazred. This became a uh, plot device in a number of other stories to the point where people are convinced that the Necronomicon is real. I'll talk about that more in just a minute. His style has influenced writers and directors like Stephen King, Roger Corman, John Carpenter, like The Thing, Ridley Scott, the alien movies, especially the one where uh, the alien meets predator and they go down to Antarctica. And uh, that, that's very Lovecraftian. But Lovecraft was definitely inspired in his fiction by the teachings of Helena Blavatsky and Alistair Crowley. Now, this Necronomicon... Um, because so many of his friend authors, author friends, included it in their stories, it took on a life of its own. And so in 1977, a fellow calling himself Simon, published a hardback version of the Necronomicon, a limited edition of 666 copies. You see what he did there? Yeah, yeah, very creative. Um, He actually created this book, the author, by going to the University of Pennsylvania, into their ancient Near Eastern section, and getting some of the translations of the Babylonian religious texts, the spells, and he put them into this book. Now, it is likely that this author, Simon, is actually the researcher and author, Peter Lavenda, who I have interviewed a number of times, found it to be very gracious, very friendly. He's got a, uh, a three-volume set called, uh, and now I'm going to forget, Excellent Research, um, It'll come to me later. Anyway, Peter's done some excellent research writing about things like the CIA's search for the ability to create multiples, okay? Essentially trying to find a way to create demonically possessed, demonically possessed Manchurian candidates. Peter says that essentially the United States government or elements within it sold its collective soul to the dark side after World War II, in exchange for knowledge. Sinister Forces is the name of the series. By the way, three volumes, Sinister Forces. If you want some excellent research into this type of thing, highly recommend it. But Peter, um, like I said, most likely, I asked him, he said, no, it wasn't me. His name's on the copyright at the Library of Congress. He said, no, no, I was just doing it as a favor for Simon. Okay, whatever. Um, rabbit trail for just a second there are people I know who say that people who have played with the Necronomicon have come into some real spiritual trouble I don't think the spells themselves are the problem it's the permission of the person who thinks that they're summoning something by saying these words by reading this poetry Frankly, I think you could read the New York City phone directory if your intention is to invite a demon into your spirit, and the demon will answer. But it was clever. He sold some books. Became sort of a cultural phenomenon. And again, inspired by H.P. Lovecraft. After World War II, of course, the modern UFO phenomenon had uh, taken over. And uh, we had the Roswell incident, the June 1947 Incident with Kenneth Arnold, and flying saucers went mainstream. And by the way, um, Arnold never said he saw a flying saucer. He said he saw craft that moved as though they were skipping across water, like a saucer. And a headline writer said, oh, flying saucer. That's where that term came from. Anyway, following World War II, and the fact that the United States government used H.P. Lovecraft's Pulp Fiction to keep troops entertained during World War II. They would send them out to the troops along with chocolate, cigarettes, whatever, just to get their minds off of what they had to do. Um, The French discovered H.P. Lovecraft. I mean, go figure. Jerry Lewis and H.P. Lovecraft. It's it's kind of a weird thing with the French. H.P. Lovecraft became a big, big, he was a huge sensation in post-war France, and a couple of French science fiction magazine authors, or editors rather, Louis Paul and Jacques Bergier launched a science fiction magazine called Planete, or Planet. Then they wrote a book called Morning of the Magicians, which took a lot of the topics that you found in Lovecraft's fiction, megalithic structures, return of the old gods, things like that, and they put it in this book. And as will happen in the publishing industry, because the book was a hit, you publish something that is popular, suddenly other people say, hmm, I can write something just like that. I'll bet it'll sell. And that is exactly what happened in 1968 when a hotel manager in Switzerland named Eric von Daniken wrote Chariots of the Gods, published in Europe 1968, translated into English in 1971, in which von Daniken claimed, quote, I claim that our forefathers received visits from the universe in the remote past, even though I do not yet know who these extraterrestrial intelligence were or from which planet they came. I nevertheless proclaim that these strangers annihilated part of mankind existing at the time and produced a new, perhaps the first, Homo sapiens. You hear that? Von Daniken hath spoken. The ancient astronauts are God. God. They created us. This book has been, it's impossible to understate the influence. What's funny is that he was so inspired by Mourning of the Magicians that uh, Powells and Bergier sued him and he had to acknowledge their uh, inspiration in future uh, editions and give them a cut. So it wasn't that Von Daniken came up with something new. He repackaged what Powells and Bergier had repackaged, which is what Lovecraft had repackaged. But von Daniken hit the right formula. In 1973, Rod Serling, creator of the Twilight Zone, filmed a documentary based around this book called In Search of Ancient Astronauts. It featured Carl Sagan and Werner von Braun. The guy who created the Saturn V rocket And the following year, Chariots of the Gods, the movie, Chariots of the Gods, the movie, was released as a feature film. Over the last 50 years, Eric Von Daniken has sold more than 63 million copies of his 26 books, all of them, promoting the idea that our creator or creators came from the stars. And this is in spite of the fact that in 1974, when he was interviewed by the National Enquirer, he said he got his ideas from, uh, what does he say, out-of-body travel to a place called Point Aleph, a sort of fourth dimension outside of space and time. Really? And that's enough to sell 63 million books? I'm in the wrong business! No, it points to the hunger that people have for answers that we have in Scripture. Where did we come from? Why are we here? And what happens to us when we die? Von Daniken puts this together, and people eat it up with a spoon. Now Jesus told us that would happen. The other hero of the ancient aliens crowd is uh, Zechariah Sitchin. Nope, let me back up. There we go. Published his book, The Twelfth Planet, 1976. He's the one who attributed the uh, creation of the ancient Sumerian culture, which archaeologists admit sort of seems to have just appeared right out of nowhere fully formed although that's beginning to change the last 20 years now. They're saying, oh yeah, the Sumerians were building cities down in the south, but uh, you know what? There are these places up in northern Mesopotamia, southern Turkey, northern Syria, that were just as complicated, had the same architecture, and built at the same time. So they're having to rethink this idea. But at the time Sitchin wrote this, they didn't know that. And as I said, he transliterated Nippur to Nibiru, and believed that the Anunnaki were a race of extraterrestrials who came from this planet beyond Neptune, which is on an elongated 3600-year elliptical orbit around the Sun. Sitchin has sold millions of copies of his books, they've been translated into 25 languages, and our friend Dr. Michael Heiser called Sitchin arguably the most important proponent of the ancient astronaut hypothesis over the last several decades. Mike has also set up a website where you can examine the claims of Dr. Sitchin for yourself with answers from an actual scholar who reads Sumerian. The website is SitchinIsWrong.com. Seriously, SitchinIsWrong.com. Now, sadly, Mr. Sitchin is no longer with us, so he now knows the truth, and we pray that uh, he found it before he breathed his last. But all of this has led to the big hair guy, and his program, which is now in its 18th season, 18th, I had to change it from this, is 12th season, no, no, 18th season now, but it has stopped being about aliens long ago, and now, sadly, it is openly shilling for theosophy. But the History Channel is not alone, science fiction is helping to spread this idea. Uh, there are many programs out there that are spreading the idea that our creators came from outer space. The Aliens franchise, uh, Prometheus. Uh, we've got other movies like Mission to Mars with Gary Sinise, where uh, the astronauts discover that our astronauts or our ancestors, rather, were actually ancient Martians. The longest-running science fiction series on television, Stargate SG One, where the astronauts or the aliens they encounter—Bale, Ra, Osiris, Kronos, Thor—they're all extraterrestrials. And by the way, Thor in Stargate SG One was an alien grey bad look for the god of thunder i've got to just say it chris hemsworth fits the part better but the idea that the ancient astronauts were the gods of the ancient world and furthermore they are our creators this is woven through all of these stories and comic books and the movies based on have been propagating this for years comic books going back 50 years 70 years friend of ours named Christopher Knowles has written a book called Our Gods Wear Spandex. It is a brilliant examination of how comic books have sold this alternate philosophy, this alternate religion to us since I was a kid. And reading, you know, Thor edition one, Thor versus Hercules. It's like, great, that's Satan versus one of the Nephilim. But that's not how it, read when I was six years old. If this was just about separating gullible people from their money, we wouldn't care. It's like fine, you wanna do this, go at it, no harm. But these are eternal consequences we're talking about. People look for these answers there. What do we do, where do we go when we die? If you trust in ET for your eternal salvation, there will come a moment after your last breath when you realize that you've been misinformed. And sadly, I was misinformed will not be an acceptable response at that great judgment. Now I said at the beginning that Crowley and Lovecraft seem to be drawing on the same sources that uh, Lovecraft certainly used Crowley as inspiration, but it's even weirder than that. It appears that Crowley and Lovecraft were actually drawing from the same spiritual well. And again, this is drawing on research by Peter Lavenda, who, as far as I know at this point, is not a Christian. Peter's an intelligent guy, and I pray that he examines the evidence. But he wrote a book called The Dark Lord, which is about the chaos god called Seth by the Egyptians, Typhon by the Greeks, Leviathan in the Bible. He focused on Seth in the book. According to Crowley, in 1907, Aleister Crowley was writing out some of the works that became seminal, foundational to the doctrines of Thelema, called the Holy Books. These books were written between October 30th and November 1st of that year. Now, Lovecraft, according to all the evidence we have, didn't know Crowley, didn't read his work, except in passing. He, didn't, he was not intimately familiar with Aleister Crowley. But later, in 1926, when H.P. Lovecraft was writing his most famous story, The Call of Cthulhu, between October 31st, uh, rather, he set the action some of the main action of the story of the call of Cthulhu on those same dates when Crowley was receiving his divine revelation, October 30th and November 1st of 1907. In 1907, Crowley wrote that one of the names that he heard from this Egyptian god that was speaking to him was Tutulu. Tutulu, he didn't know what it meant. However... Crowley's personal assistant, Kenneth Grant, later wrote that he believed that Crowley had just misheard the word that was, in fact, Cthulhu that he heard. There is no way that Lovecraft could have known this. Crowley also described in these magical writings that he was downloading from somewhere in the ether, somewhere in the spirit realm, he wrote about the abyss and Typhon, the Greek chaos god and an old, gnarled fish with tentacles, which is exactly how you would describe Cthulhu, the tentacled fish that lay at the bottom of the ocean, dead but dreaming. Peter Lavenda concludes this, there is no hard evidence that either man knew of the other. To suggest that these two men cooperated or collaborated in any deliberate way would be the height or depth of conspiracy theory. It may actually be more logical to suggest as an explanation for some of these coincidences that, coincidences, that darker forces were at work. In fact, it is possible that the same forces of which Lovecraft himself writes, the telepathic communication between followers of Cthulhu and the great old ones, was what prompted him to write these fictional accounts of real events. Either Lovecraft was in some kind of telepathic communication with Crowley, or both men were in telepathic communication with Dot, 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 something else. That's exactly how Peter wrote it. Dot, 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 something else. Dramatic tension. Now, if we put this together with our previous research, and I believe that both men, the other researcher, by the way, is Jason Colavito, who is uh, not a believer, but he's the one who pointed out the connections between Daniken and H.P. Lovecraft, if we put this together, then at the very least, H.P. Lovecraft was inspired by the theosophy of Helena Blavatsky and possibly even channeling the same spirit that fed Alistair Crowley his, his holy books for his occult religion, Tulema. Lovecraft then created a body of work that inspired ancient aliens. From the spirit realm through H.P. Lovecraft to Eric Von Daniken and 18 seasons of Giorgio the Big Hair Guy. Toward the end of his life, Lovecraft wrote about the body of work. He inspired this Cthulhu mythos, as it's called, stories based around this monstrous, tentacled creature. This pooling of resources tends to build up quite a pseudo-convincing background of dark mythology, legendary, uh, uh, legendary and bibliography. Though, of course, none of us has the least which to actually mislead or mislead readers. But that's exactly what happened. They created a great series of stories if you're into horror fiction. But Powell's and Bergier took it seriously, Mourning of the Magicians. Daniken took it seriously, Chariots of the Gods. Ancient Aliens has recycled it into 18 seasons of, could it be? And there are people now, thousands, hundreds of thousands of people who travel from all over the world to Roswell, searching for the answer. What happens when I die? Kenneth Grant, I mentioned, Crowley's successor. He took Crowley's system, Tulema, and developed it into a new system called the, uh, the Typhonian tradition. See, Grant believed he detected what he called a Sirius Set current in Crowley's magic. Sirius, the star Sirius. Set, the Egyptian chaos monster called Typhon by the Greeks. And so he developed a new magical system, the Typhonian tradition, and he changed the OTO into the Typhonian OTO, or an offshoot organization, the Typhonian OTO. But he was the one who was convinced that Lovecraft and Crowley we're hearing from the same spirit beings and long before peter lavenda wrote his book the dark god about that connection kenneth grant thought that the god of chaos set or typhon was coming toward earth from the direction of the star sirius that's the sirius set current god deals with chaos in the bible Leviathan, Rahab, the sea. When Jesus walked across the Sea of Galilee, it wasn't just to calm the waves of the storm so the boat didn't flip over. It was a reminder. Hey, Leviathan, chaos, you multi-headed dragon in the sea. On that day, the day of Yahweh, the day of the Lord, Isaiah 27, verse one, I crush your heads. Just remember, spoiler. So why are the ETs coming from Sirius? Blavatsky, her acolyte Alice Bailey, believed that Sirius was a source of supernatural power. In 1907, Alistair Crowley founded an organization called the AA, the Argentium Astrum, or the Order of the Silver Star, a reference to Sirius. According to Albert Pike, who codified Scottish Rite Freemasonry in Morals and Dogma, the ancient astronomers saw all the great symbols of masonry in the stars. Sirius still glitters in our lodges as the blazing star. The two main efforts to reach out and contact extraterrestrial intelligences out there are being conducted by SETI, the Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence, and c the Center for the Study of Extraterrestrial Intelligence. SETI in Egyptian means man of set, man of the chaos god. It's probably a coincidence. It's probably fine. Nothing to see here, citizen. Move along. It is a religious system and has been developed into a magical system called chaos magic. Developed from Kenneth Grant and another protege of Alistair Crowley named Austin Osmond Spare. I don't know a whole lot about this. All I know is that they make use of sigils. You draw a symbol, you focus on it, and stuff happens. Now, just think about this, though. They tried to develop a system of chaos. Now, Think about that for a moment. Chaos, by, by its very definition, is random. It is disordered. You cannot have a system of chaos. And yet this is one of the most popular forms of occult magic out there right now and it comes right from the well of Alistair Crowley. Essentially, it boils boils down to this. It's another false religion that says, ye can be as gods. So what is this ET disclosure phenomenon? I've got to ask this question. Why is all the alien contact that we hear about coming from people who are channeling spirits? I mean, why is it all telepathic? Dr. Greer, please explain to me as an intelligent man, how is it these entities can cross the vast blackness of space and they don't know how to use a webcam? I mean, we've all learned how to use webcams the last two years. I have done more Zoom in the last two years than I ever hoped to do the rest of my life. Skype. It, flash a laser. You know, radio signal. Send up a flare. No, it's always telepathic, which means it's spiritual, which suggests the source. From Swedenborg to Blavatsky to Crowley to the the Ashtar Command. You heard of the Ashtar Command? Yeah, this is the group that says... uh, they're the airborne division of the great brother sisterhood of light under the administrative direction of commander Ashtar, the spiritual guidance of Lord Sunanda, and our commander in chief known to earth as Jesus the Christ. <laughs> Again, another group of people who moments after their last breath will be saying we were misinformed. The Bible tells us these old entities are coming back. Who is in the abyss right now? The angel of the abyss. I will talk about this tomorrow and Sunday. Semjaza, that is who I think it is. Known in Revelation 9 as Abaddon or Apollyon, the destroyer. I also believe that the entity referred to as chaos in scripture. Leviathan, Typhon by the Greeks. Set to the Egyptians. Tiamat, Jormungandr to the Norse. This is a story that repeats over and over in ancient religions, where a warrior god had to defeat a seven-headed, seven-headed chaos dragon to create order. You know, it really blew my mind was finding out just a few months ago that in one of those myths, the warrior god Ninurta defeated a seven-headed chaos dragon, which name was Bashmu. Bashmu is the Akkadian form of Bashan. Yeah, Huh. <laughs> the land of the serpent. But Tartarus is going to open up. And they'll get five months at the end. Revelation 9. These entities, these sons of God from Genesis chapter 6. The Greeks called them the Titans. Mesopotamians called them the Apkalu. The Hur- again, this is a myth that's over and over again. The Hurrians, the ancient Horites of the Bible, called them the former gods. Story about... The gods who used to rule and got demoted to the netherworld. They come out for five months at the end. But there's another old god, and that is chaos. And we see this battle begin in Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, or was made formless and void. Darkness was over the face of the deep. Deep in Hebrew, to home. It's a cognate for the Akkadian word temtum, which in turn... And cognate means same word, different language. For the, uh, the Sumerian chaos monster, Tiamat, God was hovering over the chaos. Down, stay. In all of those other stories, that God who had defeated the, the, the chaos monster often needed help from another deity, another God. Zeus almost got beat by Typhon. Baal had to have help to defeat Yom uh uh-uh. Yahweh, down, stay. But in Psalm 74, we see the story again. God, my king, is from of old working salvation in the midst of the earth. And by the way, salvation in Hebrew is Yeshua. Just so you know. You divided the sea by your might. Sea, yom, chaos. You broke the heads of the sea monsters on the waters. You crushed the heads of Leviathan. Chaos, Leviathan. We see this final defeat, Isaiah 27, and also in Revelation 21. According to the Greek poets Hesiod and uh, Pindar, Typhon, their chaos monster, was located in Tartarus. That's the bottomless pit, the abyss, which opens up again for five months at the end. Chaos, Leviathan, defeated but not yet destroyed, which is, in a sense, like... Cthulhu of Lovecraft's story, dead but dreaming, waiting for his chance to return. Foolish human servants performing rituals, waiting for the God to restore and bestow his favor upon them. Well, when this God comes back, he's not going to be what his followers think. Isaiah 27 verse 1, in that day, that's a reference to the day of the Lord, the day of Yahweh, the day of Armageddon, in that day, The Lord with his hard and great and strong sword will punish Leviathan the fleeing serpent, Leviathan the twisting serpent, and he will slay the dragon that is in the sea. That is prophecy. And then Revelation 20, Revelation 21, after the sea gives up the dead who are in it, death and Hades give up the dead who are in them. They're judged, each one of them, according to what they've done. Death and Hades thrown into the lake of fire. We always think death, the final enemy defeated by God. There's one more, Revelation 21.1 that I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. The sea, especially in the Old Testament, represents chaos, primordial chaos. In fact, the word in Hebrew is Yam, the same word the Canaanites gave their chaos monster, defeated by Baal. Why? Why was John inspired to write the sea separately? If there's a new heaven and a new earth, you'd think the new earth comes... Complete with all the uh, extras like seas included. You know, why is the sea mentioned separately? The sea is no more. Because that's the final defeat of chaos. The final defeat of chaos. In our book, Giants, Gods, and Dragons, Sharon and I made the case that uh, the seven headed monster that comes out of the sea, again representing chaos in Revelation 13, the Antichrist, the spirit of Antichrist we made the case that that is Leviathan. We believe chaos is the spirit that indwells the human we call Antichrist. Doesn't sound like a dragon when he's described in Revelation 12, but if you look back at the art of ancient Mesopotamia, that is exactly how they drew dragons 3,000, 4,000 years ago. John knew it, his readers would have known it. If as we read in Colossians, all things were created by Christ and in him, all things hold together. What could be more antichrist than chaos? It's a theory. That's not a theological hill I'll die on. But I think that's as good a theory as any. Of course, then I got to explain how the antichrist, the beast gets thrown into sea and then the sea is no more. That's Like I said, it's a work in progress. It's not a hill I'm going to die on. But the point is this, at the end, God destroys hell and death, which is really what this war is all about, a war against death. I'll talk about that Sunday morning. And chaos. These folks, chaos magic, those who are reaching out to the stars, trying to bring the ancient aliens back, they know not what they do. But nothing is going to happen that God doesn't allow. And he's already seen the end from the beginning. Take comfort in that. There's a lot of fear that we can spread when we start looking at end times prophecy. A lot of pastors will avoid it because it is scary. But it doesn't have to be. This is God bringing justice back to this world. And this world needs a good solid dose of justice. If God doesn't bring justice back to the world, then what kind of a God do we serve? No, he is ultimately just, ultimately fair, and ultimately righteous. And when the end comes, those who have thrown in with the enemy throughout history, sadly, they will get their final reward. We join him in the new heaven and the new earth. Praise God and hallelujah, and Lord, please, if you're listening, a job in the archives. Thank you. If you'd like to have permanent access to that video course you can you know get it here on the website but uh, our streaming video site gilberthouse.org slash video has more presentations like that Uh, you can rent them for seven days for as little as three bucks or get permanent access Uh, and uh, we hope you take advantage of it because we know that God bless you some of you in uh, Europe uh, New Zealand have uh, ordered DVDs from us and if you're living in a place well for one thing shipping is ridiculous across the ocean. But if you're living in a country that's value-added tax, VAT on top of the shipping, and the God bless you for doing it. We really appreciate your support. We're just trying to offer this as an alternative where you can get uh, you can get the videos in better quality for one thing. DVD's not as good a quality as what we can offer for streaming. You get instant access and no VAT. So, GilbertHouse.org slash video. Coming up, it appears that Anheuser-Busch has not yet learned Its lesson losing $27 billion in market cap, not yet enough of a lesson. And uh, we'll tell you where we will be. You can come see Sharon and me, along with many of our good friends like L.A. Marzulli, Dr. Michael Lake, and others, uh, straight ahead as a view from the bunker continues.
1: guess what month it is and that's why maybe we're wearing red white and blue
0: it's july it's
1: july which means not only that you know the united states celebrates independence day but also anniversary of something oh big. yes the
0: 1947 roswell crash which occurred over fourth of july weekend it
1: did in yeah. fact in 2017 you and i and josh peck all went to roswell to see exactly what happened and get some expert interviews And then you wrote a book.
0: Yes, Josh and I wrote the book, The Day the Earth Stands Still, about the phenomenon. Because for many people, the UFO phenomenon is not about figuring out how we can travel to the stars. It is really a religion. Answering the big questions of life. Why are we here? Where do we come from? What happens when we die?
1: And it is back in the news. So that is the main reason. We've decided to bring back a special from last summer. If you get this book, and you will get... These two practically free yes. because the whole package you're going to save thirty dollars. Yes. it's only thirty five dollars for all three. You get the book, the two Sci Friday crazy you uh, know. best
0: of deals is fourteen hours of video oh, yeah. on the uh, between the two uh, best of Sci Friday, and we do address the UFO phenomenon on some mm-hmm. of these episodes. Thirty five dollars plus shipping and handling available now only at our store online, GilbertHouse.org/store. Driving the internet to think every Sunday night from the heart of the beautiful Missouri Ozarks. This is a view from the bunker. I'm Derek Gilbert. You'll find us at vftb.net, of course, our global hub, GilbertHouse.org, and on social media, you'll find us at Twitter at View From Bunker or at Derek Gilbert. Our Facebook page, View From the Bunker, and of course, the new social media sites. Taking advantage of those, Truth Social, gab me, we get her at Derek P. Gilbert. If you're watching on YouTube, thank you. Subscribe, share with your friends, but be aware that we are playing in their sandbox for free, and that gives them the right to kick us out anytime they want for just about anything they want, and so we encourage you to take a moment and download our free mobile app. Our app gets you all of our content, View from the Bunker, our Bible study tomorrow morning, Gilbert House Fellowship, actually released on Sunday morning, so this is actually uh, retroactive, but uh, PID Radio comes out every Saturday, and, uh, of course, we've got archives going back to 2005 available on the app now, too. And and we just started using a new feature called messaging. When you use the app in the top right corner, you'll see there's a little uh, icon that looks like two little talk balloons. When you use those, you can go into an area where you can uh, discuss these programs and uh, take advantage of the section marked prayer requests, people loading in there and sharing Some uh, really heartfelt requests for prayer and some really heartfelt prayers as well. And because this bypasses social media, you're not going to trigger an algorithm that's going to bring down unwanted attention on you for something that you're requesting. Uh, So it is really neat. Again, the, the developers, Subsplash, do an amazing job. We are really blessed by their attention to detail and the reliability of the app. Many of our friends in ministry use it, like Skywatch TV, L.A. Marzulli, PTL Network, uh, Prophecy Watchers, uh, Dr. Doug Hamp, Dr. Ken Johnson, Pastor Casper McLeod, many of our apps based on this same platform. Um, so anyway, we're taking advantage of this uh, messaging feature. We invite you to take advantage of it as well. You can find it at gilberthouse.org app, gilberthouse.org app. Well, time for bless their pointy little heads every week i try to bring forward a story that um, you know is just so ridiculous it's it makes you wonder is this real sort of the same concept as the website not the com. love that uh, love that website i go there every day because quite often there's stuff there that uh, is legitimate news but it's just so well uh, let's just say if we if we rolled back the clock 10 years it's not the kind of thing you would ever have expected to see in the headlines, and yet we are constantly confronted by these headlines on a weekly basis, my challenge, or daily basis. My challenge each week is to try to comment on these without getting snarky or uh, angry, because for many of the people in this world, the only gospel that they will know is what they see in the way we behave. And so my challenge is trying to behave in a way that is more respectful and loving than perhaps they might be willing to show to us. But as Jesus said, look, um, they're not going to treat you any better than they treated me. So uh, we just remember that when the skeptics, the uh, critics are getting angry, it's not at us. It's because of who we represent. And so let's consider that an honor to take that kind of, uh, take that kind of abuse. And I will say this, uh, what little Sharon and I have caught is just like nothing compared to those who are really on the front lines trying to witness to people in uh, certain, certain communities and in certain countries. Um, Anheuser-Busch, you would think, would have learned its lesson after the disastrous public relations move back on April 1st and in fact, because it was announced on April 1st, I thought at first this this was a joke. You you remember, of course, the uh, commemorative can celebrating 365 days of girlhood for Dylan Mulvaney, uh, the young man who is making a career of, uh, well, pretending to be a woman on, on TikTok. Uh, since this has happened, Anheuser-Busch InBev, AB InBev, the parent company, has dropped literally tens of billions of dollars in market value. The stock has dropped about 14% since April 1st. And yet, and it's because people are you know saw this, it's like, I'm sorry, I don't support that lifestyle. And frankly, uh, the, on Anheuser-Busch's part, it was really an unforced error. It's, it's that uh, the marketing department there just had no understanding or respect for the people who typically bought Bud Light. And so they said, "Okay, we're going to force this on them, whether they want it or not. It's for their own good. Well, Middle America just said, "Mm, no, Uh, there's really no discernible difference between Bud Light and Miller Light and Coors Light. And so I can go drink something else and it's not really going to change my lifestyle at all. But it has certainly affected AB's bottom line. However, this past weekend, Bud Light popped up as the official sponsor of the Toronto Pride Parade. Okay, fine. It's, you know, they've been doing this for 10 years. It's their money. They're entitled to do with it as they please. Uh, Bud Light Canada sponsoring for the 10th year the Toronto Pride Parade. However, video captured by journalists for the post-millennial show that there were naked man, naked men in this parade riding bicycles in clear view of children who were at the event. Uh, naked men standing around, naked men um, uh, washing themselves and playing in a fountain with families walking by. Uh, Another clip showed a a person wearing a giant phallus costume and then pulling back to show a little girl in a stroller staring at this person dressed as a giant obelisk. Um, And, and of course, uh, the float carrying Bud Light is caught on video. It's very plainly front and center in an entertainment stage, clearly marked with Bud Light branding featuring scantily clad dancers. And I'm not showing any pictures here because most of these are not family friendly. I I just don't want to uh, encourage that. Um, But uh, Bud Light released a statement. It's in fact on the website. Bud Light Canada has been a proud partner of Pride Toronto for the last 10 years. This year, we're commemorating this milestone with Pride Toronto by featuring them in our can design, as well as continuing as the official beer sponsor of the festival. And according to the website, Bud Light Canada also provides $100,000 to various organizations that support the LGBTQA2S plus community. Okay, Two Spirit. That's a... Native American thing. Um, And they've created a a range of commemorative Pride beer cans to celebrate this collaboration. Now, again, they've lost roughly $27 billion in market cap since April 1st. $27 billion. And, And sponsoring the Pride parade is one thing. It's what they were celebrating as part of that parade. That is concerning. Look, this doesn't even have anything to do with with preferred gender or, or sexuality. It's that you had people, grown adults, openly displaying their private parts in front of children. Okay? Openly engaging in activity that would... That that children would not be allowed to watch in a movie theater, and yet this is what Bud Light Canada was was sponsoring in Toronto over the weekend. Look, there aren't many towns, communities, municipalities that would tolerate a say a porn star parade, okay? Because again, this is not a hetero homosexual thing. It's just if you got people who are openly displaying themselves. In front of children, most communities in the US and Canada would say, No, we are not going to stand for this. But because it's connected to pride, it's not only allowed, it's considered family friendly. I mean, okay, the people who are in that lifestyle, God bless you. I really don't care. I question the parents who are bringing their children to this event. And again, given that they've lost $27 billion in market capitalization over the last, what, April, May, June, not even three months. 14% of the companies, not just Bud Light, the whole corporation, AB InBev is a huge, huge corporation that's got like dozens of different beer brands being dragged down by this anchor that is Bud Light. And yet in Toronto, going in front of families, which again, why would you bring your children to this, mm, having some clue that maybe this would be going on? um, Maybe people are just saying they've had enough. Well, to the uh, marketing team at Bud Light Canada, I say, bless your pointy little heads. We're going to be in the Ohio Dayton, Ohio area in less than a month right at the end of the month july 28 29 2023 sharon and me along with uh, quite a few of our good friends this is quite a lineup dr mike and kathy spalding are putting together the go therefore conference uh at the harvest revival center in brookville uh ohio just outside dayton la marzulli dr michael lake uh, coach dave daubenmeyer dr sherry tenpenny uh, Dr. Gregory Reed, he's been a guest on this program, and he's got a powerful testimony. Pastor Casper McLeod, uh, Tom Dunn, and Vicki Joy Anderson through the Black Ministries talk about spiritual warriors. Uh, Kenny C., our good friend David Paxton, uh, Randy Conway from our neck of the woods here in uh, in the Ozarks, and uh, Nathan Branham, that is the lineup of speakers. Oh, David Hevner, forgot about David Hevner. Uh, he will be there as well. So um, if you're in eastern Indiana, western Ohio, southern Michigan... Please, please consider joining us for this weekend, Friday and Saturday, July 28th and 29th, 2023, just $59 registration. Um, It will probably sell out. Now, if you can't make the trip, um, streaming video is available, so you can sign up and catch this. I will be talking, I just decided on this this week, I'll be talking about the the subject that uh, we featured on Iron and Myth just a couple of weeks ago about uh, why... Why the area in the north of Galilee, the north of Judea, the upper Galilee, was so supernaturally charged in the time of Jesus. And, and going back, actually, thousands of years before the time of Jesus, because Mount Hermon is in that, that region. Um, and uh, how the book of First Enoch reflects this, and why we should pay attention to the book of First Enoch there's stuff in there that clearly reflects the geography of the Upper Galilee and the Bashan, the ancient kingdom of Og. So that'll, that'll be my talk. So I've got to, now that I've made that public, I'm going to have to get busy and put together the, uh, the presentation. Anyway, uh, find out more and sign up at GoThereForConference.com. GoThereForConference.com. And uh, just a reminder, Timothy Alberino, our special guest for a 2024 tour of Israel, we will take you to those supernaturally supercharged locations in the Holy Land, make the Bible come alive, explain to you why it was so important that Jesus based his ministry at, at Capernaum, why he you know, said the, the gates of hell will not prevail against my ecclesia, my congregation, my assembly, where he did Caesarea Philippi. Yeah, when you see it and you realize, oh, that's why he called that place the gates of hell. Yeah, it uh, really, really brings it into sharp focus. The dates, March 31st through April 9th of 2024 with an optional three-day extension to Jordan. Find out more online and reserve your place at Gilberts in Israel, Israel gilbertsinisrael.com. Speaking of Israel, I forgot to mention that uh, the Tuesday before we go to Dayton... We will be down at Blue Eye, Missouri, that is uh, Morningside for a recording session with uh, Jim Baker, the Jim Baker Show, with Aaron Lipkin, the CEO of Lipkin Tours. Uh, we have been uh, telling the uh, folks down there at Morningside about this uh, friend of ours who's got these really great video drones and he takes some amazing pictures of the archaeological sites and oh yes he helped he helped find the curse, the lead curse tablet at the site of Joshua's altar. So we'll be talking about all of that Tuesday, July 25th at Morningside. This is open to the public and free. So you can come and join us. If you're in the Ozarks, consider joining us that day. Uh, hear what Aaron has to say and uh, come and say hello. You'll find out more at our website, gilberthouse.org. Thank you for taking time out of your schedule to uh, watch or listen. Again, if you're watching on YouTube, please subscribe, share, and then download our app. Otherwise, if you get a spare moment and uh, you uh, can leave us a review at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, iHeartRadio, Spotify, Spreaker, wherever fine podcasts are sold, we would, we would definitely appreciate that. Our announcer is DC Good, and a view from the bunker is a production of Gilbert House Ministries, released under Creative Commons Attribution, non commercial, no derivatives 4.0 international license. We wrestle not against flesh and blood. I'm Derek Gilbert. And this is A View from the Bunker.
1: With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom?
0: Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. (gasps)